0: As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together before we look at it. Father, we pray that you will take this word and that you would massage it into our hearts and that you might change us by it, that you might help us to examine whether we are the Galatians, who so quickly deserted the good news for things that promise us good that do not deliver. Remind us this morning, Father, that your promises are good. Remind us that sin tells us that you are withholding good from us. Remind us that you are good. That you are better than sin, that you are in control, that you are gracious. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. The experience of astonishment etches the event on the memory of your soul. You never forget those times when you're astonished. ESPN did a video of soldiers coming home from their tours of duty. Have you seen this video? The video where the mom and the children are, for example, the one that's in Columbia, South Carolina, they're at William Bryce Stadium in the middle of the field and the husband, the daddy, the father is talking to them through the jumbotron. And then the announcer over the PA Before the game begins, says, thank you to all of our men and women in armed forces. And now I'm pleased to introduce to you, you know, Sergeant so-and-so. And And then he comes out of the tunnel and the wife and the kids see their daddy and they run to him. Oh, don't watch the video. It'll mess you up. (laughs) Like I watched it this morning and I made a huge mistake because I was like sobbing at my desk watching this video again. The wife is astonished. The kids are astonished. They'll never forget it. Their heart is warmed. Now, I want you to imagine, too, that you come home from work one day, like some of you have had happen to you, and you find that the molding on your back door has been kicked in, the door is slightly ajar, and that your house has been vandalized, been robbed, been robbed. Place is a mess inside. Things that were once important to you are missing. You feel violated. Not in my house. You're irate. You're irritated. You're frustrated. You're mad. Who do I call? Who can? I, who can I? How did this happen? You're astonished. There's positive ways to be astonished, and there's negative ways to be astonished. And in Greek letters in the ancient Near East, whenever someone would write a letter, they would tell you who they were, they would tell you who they're writing to, and then they would give what's called a eucharizo. It's the word we get the word, eucharist. They would give you an offering of thanksgiving. They would say, I'm so thankful for your influence on my life. I'm so grateful for you. And they would list the good characteristics about these people. But in Galatians chapter one, Paul doesn't give a Eucharizo where you expect him to give it in verse 6. Instead, he gives a Thamazo, which is a formal way of rebuking people. Now, this is his very first letter that he's ever written in AD 49. And he writes to a group of Christians, mind you, listen, not non-Christians, to Christians like me and like you who have heard the gospel of grace And then they were influenced to turn from a different gospel, a gospel that is no gospel at all because it's not good news. And you may remember last week that I talked about the nature of the gospel. And I I explained this chart to you. And I said in this chart, the cross begins to become beautiful to you because it bridges the gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness. And that cross, when you're saved, fills the gap, bridges. So it allows you, a sinful person, to become righteous and holy in God's sight. And as you get older, you begin to see that those lines diverge and that God's holiness gets greater and your, your awareness, that is, and your awareness of your sin gets deeper all of your life. But there's a problem. The cross that you first believed in became a Christian remains the same size. So that as you grow older, you say, oh, the, the cross is great. It got me into become a Christian. It was wonderful. But there are gaps that develop between the finished work of Jesus and your awareness of God's holiness and your awareness of your sinfulness. And you leave the gospel and I leave the gospel because you try to fill in those gaps. And you say, well, Jesus' cross is great, but it's not enough. And I need to somehow fill in the gaps with this podcast, this Bible study, this spiritual discipline, as good as it might be, but you subtly start to try to earn God's favor, not necessarily by your explicit sins, what Luther calls the black devils. But maybe even if you're like me, more so because of what Luther calls the white devil, your own righteousnesses. They become beautiful and right in and of themselves, but you twist them to become idols so that you try to fill in the gaps by your own good works. In the book of Galatians, there are some people, those who want to trouble you, it says in Galatians 1, they were called Judaizers, who said that you have been taught that the cross is enough, but I'm here to tell you that it's not. That as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, you have to also, in this case, for the Galatians, be circumcised. And they tried to fill in the gap with circumcision. But the only way you fill in that gap, friends, is the same way that gap was filled when you became a Christian. And that is through faith and repentance. The same way the cross saved you is the same way you grow in the Christian life your entire life. But our problems also in Galatians is that we constantly try to fill in those gaps. So the question that naturally arose out of the sermon last week was this. Paul, like a jackhammer, says gospel, verse six, gospel, verse seven, gospel, verse eight, gospel, verse nine. He uses it four times. What does he mean by the word gospel? What is the gospel? And how do I know if I'm turning from it? So that's what I wanna do this morning in the time we have together. Can we figure out what the gospel that Paul preached was from those first nine verses? And then how do you and I know if we are turning from it. Sound like a plan? All right, lower your eyes to your text and let's look together. What is the gospel? I'm gonna give you a definition of the gospel. It's the big idea of the sermon. If you have a pen, you might wanna write it down. Here it is. I'm gonna give you the definition and then I'm gonna show you where in the text I got it. Here's the definition. The gospel is the good news verse 1, that God the Father rescues, verse 4, redefines and redirects those he calls by his sovereign grace through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I'll say it again and again. Don't worry if you didn't get it all. The gospel is the good news that God the Father rescues, redefines, and redirects those he calls by his sovereign grace through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is first of all about what God has done, not about what you do. It is good news Let's pick this definition apart here for a second. Look at verse one. It says, Paul, an apostle. Now that's big A apostle. Little a apostle just means sent to be an emissary, to be a representative with news commissioned by an authority with credentials. That's what a little a apostle means. So in that sense... Anybody who goes and brings the good news to somebody might be called a little A apostle. You're someone who is sent with a message, by an authority, with the proper credentials. Now, big A apostle is what the apostle Paul was also. Big A apostle means that somebody was called personally by the resurrected Jesus. Jesus. Empowered, commissioned, authorized by him to be his apostle, his emissary of good news. Question, big A apostles, do they continue today or did they stop? According to the New Testament, the big A apostles stopped because what were the prerequisites? You had to be commissioned by the resurrected Jesus. Well, Paul, when was Paul commissioned by the resurrected Jesus? In Acts 9, he has knocked off his horse on the way to Damascus, and the resurrected Christ appeared to him, and Paul says, "Lord, Lord." And then Jesus says, "You go into the city, and once you get there, then I'll tell you what to do." So Paul, first of all, is someone who brings good news. The gospel is good news. People ask you sometimes, or if you go around town, and you were to ask somebody, "Are you a Christian?" Yeah, I'm a Christian. Awesome. What's the gospel? Like, if I were to ask you that question prior to 15 minutes ago, what's the gospel? What would you say? Well, Jesus is Lord. Is that good news? It's not good news for sinners. God saves. Is that good news for you? How does he do that? Through your own moral effort? You're a sinner. You're a sitting duck. Is that good news for you? The gospel, first of all, friends, is good news. It is good news about what God has done. Second, that God the Father rescues. Look at verse 4 who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. The word to deliver is exario. It's the word to extract, to pull out from danger. It's, um, It's a word that means to be brought out of a dangerous environment. Now, Christians aren't delivered out of the world, they're delivered from this present world. You're still in it. You're still a part of it. It's a good thing to be a part of it, to be in it, but you're separate from it because you have a new identity that's not defined by the world. You are rescued. That is the whole point of the Old Testament, isn't it? How will Israel be rescued and redeemed? Well, through Moses, great. Well, then through Joshua, great. They're in the promised land. And then they're taken captive by Babylon and then Assyria, Reverse Assyria and then Babylon. Well, oh, great. When will the Messiah finally come? Ah, the good news is that God is gonna rescue you. To rescue. That's what he says in verse four, isn't it? Undoubtedly, that was part of, God, of Paul's gospel proclamation to the Galatians. The gospel is the good news that God the Father rescues and then redefines. He redefines you How do we know that? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Listen, the apostle Paul, friends, you do know, was named after Israel's first king, a Benjamite, like Paul himself from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul. Paul himself probably had a mother who was Jewish, And somehow his parents, perhaps through his father's relationship with Rome, inherited, gained by his birth, Roman citizenship. He was a global man who had Roman citizenship, who used his prestige as a good Jew, a faithful Jew, who had gone through everything a young Jewish boy had gone through and excelled at every level. He used his position of prominence as a Pharisee, To not just attack Christianity but to ask for a notarized warrant from the government to be given permission to arrest and to kill Christians. Saul was the most feared name by the early Christian church. In fact who was it that in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen the first martyr was stoned in the New Testament? Who was it that received the coats of the people who were there. They laid their coats at the feet of someone who was in authority over that whole situation. Who was it? Saul. So isn't it amazing that Saul, the Christian bounty hunter, is writing to the Galatians, and the first thing he says is, I'm an apostle, not from men, but by Jesus Christ. Friends, the gospel redefines you. It reshapes the way you view the world so that the gospel isn't just some intellectual truth that you understand cognitively, intellectually, but it becomes the window through which you view all of your life. The gospel redefines who you are. And therefore, because it redefines who you are, it is your affection, the affection of your father that matters most to you when you're rejected. It is the affection of your loving heavenly father who sings over you his love that matters most to support you, to nourish you. Why? Because he has justified you through the work of his son, that you are righteous in his sight. You have a new name, Christian. He rescues, redefines, and third, he redirects. He redirects you. Notice in verse 6, all the way down through verse 9, Paul says they are turning from a gospel. The word to turn away is like a turncoat, it's a military term. You have turned and you have run from your post. You have totally changed schools of thought. You have filled in the gaps where you think the cross is not sufficient for you. He redirects you, He leads you to a life of repentance. Not only does he redirect you, but all of this is the work of God. Look at verse four and look at verse six. Verse four says, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us according to the will of God our Father. And in verse six, it says, you're deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. So, if we were to put this definition together, you can pull it out from these, do you, are you with me? Do you see You can pull this definition of the gospel out from the first nine verses of this book. And you can reconstruct the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians and it would go something very close to this. The gospel is the good news that God the Father rescues, redefines and redirects those he calls by his sovereign grace through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, here's the question. How do you know if you believe that? I don't mean, do you understand it? Even the demons believe and they shudder. I mean, do you believe it? You know that you believe it when you are practicing repentance and faith. And I'm going to try To flesh this out what does it mean to practice repentance many of you practice repentance the way that you put on your clothing we're all grateful that you do and you take off your dirty clothes you put it in the hamper and then you put on a clean shirt i have a favorite shirt i might wear it once every two weeks it's my favorite shirt i love it i wear it all the time and i feel good when i wear that shirt Many of you feel good when you practice repentance, but you view repentance like when you come to Trinity on Sunday and you practice the corporate confession of sin. That's your time to be repentant. But repentance, according to Scripture, is not just serial. It's not just S-E-R-I-A-L, not C-E-R-E-A-L. It's not something that you just practice once in a while. It is not like a piece of clothing that you put on, though it might be your favorite shirt. Repentance is like the air that you breathe. As a Christian, you are constantly breathing. As a Christian, you're constantly walking in repentance. You might have periods of time when you do it in a very self-reflective way, but all of your life is to be lived in repentance, Martin Luther said. The whole of your life is to be lived that way. And in the same way, your whole of your life is to be lived by walking by faith, seeing the gospel becoming more and more beautiful to you. So here's the question How do you know if you're walking in repentance? If you look on the chart that's in your bulletin, Thomas Watson wrote a book many, many years ago. He's an old Puritan called The Doctrine of Repentance. And Watson lays out six pathways, or a pathway with six steps to walk in repentance. Here they are sight for sin, sorrow for your sin. Confession of your sin, saying it out loud. Humility, hatred for your sin, and then you turn from sin. And the issue with the Galatians is the same issue that I struggle with, if I can be really honest with you. I don't always see my sin. And you know the number one reason why I don't see my sin? It's because I blame shift. It is my default mode of operation. And you know what? It's yours too. Because that was Adam's. When he was held to account by the father in the garden, what did he do? Immediately he pointed his finger and said, it was that woman you gave me. And the reason that we blame shift is because we doubt God's goodness. We don't believe that God is good when he brings sin to our own awareness. But the gospel says, friends, that he is good. And He is a loving father who is showing you yourself so you can know yourself better and that you can bask in the beauty of the sufficiency of his cross that gets bigger all the days of your life. The spiritual malignancy that we have that causes us not to see our sin is that we do not believe that God is good. That is the foundation of almost every single one of us moving into sin. We stop believing that God is good. The Galatians were tricked to say, listen, the word Paul gave you, listen, it's not the complete story. God God saves you by faith? No, no, no. He's good because he wants you to help earn it. And they begin to believe that. The second thing you have to see, not just your sin, but you have to be sorry to have a sorrow, rather, for your sin. You weep over your sin. And I don't just mean you're sad you got caught. I mean you're sad for the sin itself, what it does to your family, what it does to your own heart, how it hardens your heart. And if we're honest, the thing that we believe in contradistinction to being able to be sorry for our sin, the thing that we really believe is that we, We doubt the benefits that are ours in Christ. We doubt that God wants us to be holy, that we don't really see the joy of walking in holiness. And so we're not broken over our sin because it's more fun. It's not what scripture says. Do you see your sin? Do you have sorrow for your sin? Then do you confess it? Do you say it? How do you know if you're walking away from the gospel? You are defensive. What are you defensive about? Seriously, like, what are you defensive about today? What do you want to be right about in the eyes of other people? Do you create excuses? Or do you own your sin? The Galatians were guilty of what's called self-justification. I will be be made right with God through my own moral good effort. Watson says you have to see it. You have to be sorry for it. You have to have sorrow for it. You confess it. You're humbled by it. And all of my pastoral counseling, this is probably one that is the hardest for a lot of us because if we're really honest with ourselves. We find ourselves in this trap very, very quickly, and that is this fourth step humility for sin. Because most of us feel like we've been handed a deck of cards or given a hand of cards, sorry to mix the metaphor, given a hand that wasn't fair. And we are all very quick to cry foul, and that we wallow in our self pity. That has no place in the gospel, self pity. Because it is Jesus who took upon himself the self-pity that you might feel in your shame and your guilt and your sin for all the past sins you may have committed. This is particularly apparent with women who have had abortions. And there may be some of you in this room who have had abortions or people who have committed very egregious sin. It's very public. And you wallow in your self-pity and you can't seem to get outside of this box that seems to close in on you. And it's good for you to be able to hear the promises of God to deliver you out of your self-pity because self-talk doesn't deliver you out of your self-pity. It is hearing the good news of the promises of Scripture which do deliver you out of self-pity. I will never leave you or forsake you in Deuteronomy chapter 31. You will never be abandoned. Though you may have abandoned others, he will never abandon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. God's promises to you are good. He promises to keep you in your care, in his care and to watch over you. He will never betray you. The Lord will turn his face towards you and he will give you his peace. He will never turn his back on you, though you might turn your back on him. Believing in the promises of God deliver us out of the self-pity that so many of us find ourselves tormented by. Sight for sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, humility of sin, hatred of sin. We don't only hate the sins of others or of sin's consequences, but we hate the sin itself for what it does to us. And lastly, we turn from it and we walk the other way. Rather than substitute it with another enticement and another sin to fill in the gap, we turn our backs and we walk away. And as we walk away, we check ourselves to make sure that we're not just substituting something else to fill its place. There are a hundred things that I substitute to fill in place, things that give me comfort. And repentance for me becomes like the air I breathe, not the clothing that I wear. It becomes the oxygen that I inhale day by day to help every bit of my body survive and live. So it is also for you, Christian. And the way that you know that you're walking in line with the truth of the gospel is that you find yourself growing in repentance. You don't blame shift. You're not self-justifying. You're not just sad that you got caught when you sin. But you're sorrowful for the sin itself. You're not defensive. And you don't create excuses. You own up to it. And you confess it. You don't wallow in your self-pity, but you're humbled by it. You hate the sin, not because of the consequences of it, though they can be severe, but you hate the sin itself. And you turn from it. Friends, those of us who are members of this church, let me talk to you directly for a moment. This is what we are called to do and to be for each other. We are to help people see sin, not because we're like trying to be inspector gadget and identify it in somebody else. You are called to lead us by your own self-awareness of your sin. Because chances are good that some of you have struggled with sins your entire life, maybe since you were a little boy or a little girl, and you may continue to struggle with them until the day that you die. The key word there is struggle over them. And the hard part about it is almost everybody in this room sees it before you do. And one of the things that is so great about our community groups, we pray as elders is that we become a place where people more and more have good relationships with good relational capital where we can help each other learn one another better. We can understand ourselves better. I can't possibly know myself well unless the elders of this church help identify things in me that I struggle with that I don't yet see but they help point out. And you need friends like that. Why didn't one of these Galatians stand up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what Paul preached. Because every one of them were taken by these Judaizers. And so also in the evangelical church today, it is so easy to be taken by things that are good, conferences, spiritual disciplines, those things are fruits and they're wonderful tools, but they are never ways to fill in the gaps of the gospel. Do you hear me? Help me to treasure the gospel like we treasure air. There's a story of a woman who went to a pet store and she bought a pet parrot and she took the parrot home and the parrot didn't talk and she brought the parrot back the next day on Tuesday and said to the pet store owner, the parrot doesn't talk. And he says, you need to buy him a ladder. So she buys him a ladder. Parrot doesn't talk. Next day, Wednesday, she comes into the pet store and says, sir, sir, the parrot still doesn't talk. The pet store owner says, you need to buy him a mirror. So she buys a mirror. Next day, she comes back to the pet store on Thursday and says, sir, the pet, The parrot doesn't talk. He goes, oh, you need to buy him a plastic parrot so he doesn't feel alone. So she buys a plastic parrot. She takes him home. Over the weekend, parrot dies. She brings the parrot in, the dead parrot, to make her point. On Monday morning, says to the pet store owner, the parrot died. And the pet store owner says, well, did he talk before he died? She says, yes. He said one sentence. Well, what did he say? He said, does that pet store owner know anything about food? The timing was off, but the joke you get, right? (laughs) The gospel is food for us. It becomes the food we need. And you can put ladders and mirrors and plastic parrots in your cage with you all you want. You can look the part of a Christian, but unless you practice faith and repentance, you are not feeding on Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel, which is that God, the Father rescues, redefines, and he redirects those he calls by a sovereign grace through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And as you practice that together, friends, we become people who are able to, as Paul will say later in Galatians chapter two, walk in line with the truth of the gospel. Repentance and faith, growing less self-justifying, we are growing more humbled by our sin together. That's the beauty of the work of Jesus in our own hearts and in the midst of a communities together. It's about what Christ has done, not about what we do. Do not fill in the gaps with the cross. Repent and grow in faith and allow that cross to grow larger and larger the older that we get. He's beautiful. He's worth it. The gospel is more beautiful and believable than you can even imagine. Do you see it? Do you believe that he has rescued and redeemed you from your sin? And he has covered you in a righteousness that is not your own. It is alien, given to you by Jesus. And is that good news to you? (sighs) Be astonished by that. Jesus loves you. Amen. Now's our time, we will give offering, give back what the Lord has given to us. Bow your heads and join.